You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Well, welcome back to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapters 10 to 12. Uh, today we have the final scene in Act 2, if you are splitting this book out into its many, in its many acts. And this is the final scene in conquering the land. Uh, today includes scenes of bloody battles, contests for control, divine justice, and weather events that would have made the climate emergency crew start campaigning much earlier than they originally did. That's for you, Matt. It's a journey of, unexpectation, of unexpected juxtaposition. You see, there are hunters that go on to become the hunted. There is a land full of war that goes on to become the land of rest. There is a nation that starts out with nothing, that finishes with everything. And there is a God of power and of purpose who leads the people he loves into prosperity and peace. This is an account where today in these these words we will be confronted, but we will also be comforted. This is an account where we will be forced to have to face our limitedness and our neediness. But it will also lead us to discover the one who so generously, graciously gives and provides. So today within these lines of epic history, there's an opportunity to learn lessons that will give us true liberation. Welcome back to the book of Joshua. Today we're going to be broadly covering chapters 10 to 12. Uh, thank you, Matt, already for the context you've already begun to give for us. Um, now, 
Uh, we're going to be shaping our time around uh, two key headings this morning in the way that we want to be looking around these three chapters. Uh, these two key headings are that people who have chosen to live with God as their king, that people who have chosen to live with God as their king, they are people who live to help. They are people who live to help. And that they are people who live in hope. People who have chosen to live with God as their king, they, have, they are people who live to help and who live in hope. So the first part of our story today, we think about how God's people, we help. We help. Uh, it's a story so far. Uh, Matt, Matt has done a great job sort of refreshing us in where we're up to at this point. The Gibeonites, uh, they began to feel the pressure of Israel, which was rapidly taking ground. And so they threw themselves upon the mercy of God and said, in what can we please be included into the family? They did that somewhat deceptively. They just did what they could do to fall upon the mercy of God. And Joshua made promises to them, and they have now been included into the family of God. They are servants, they're drawers of waters and cutting of wood, but they're in. They're in the family, and it's going, it's going good, as far as we can see. Now, this chapter, uh, this chapter begins with actually the Amorite kings of the land hearing about these Gibeonites that have made peace with these Israelites. Now, these Amorite kings, they already know that if they're to face, if they're to go to war with Israel, they're stuffed. As per everyone else so far that has decided to rebel against God. So the Amorites, you know, their plan at this point is, well, if we can't beat up God, let's beat up his friends. Maybe we don't have power to overcome God, but I reckon if we join forces, we can have power to overcome those guys. And the people in the city, the people of Gibeon, they, they're like, oh no, they're coming for us now. We thought God was coming for us, but now, all the Amorites are coming for us. Now, this is the big deal. Back in ancient Near East culture, the Amorites are known as being like the war people. They're like, it's just like you don't pick a fight with an Amorite because it'll go wrong. Okay? And so we read in verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal. So they've got some runners. They'll be like, run, go get Joshua. They didn't have email on that, that day. So two guys, off they go, marathon time. And then he says, do not relax your hands from your servants. Okay, yeah, that's good language. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. Notice, Gibeonites aren't trying to make a treaty now with the Amorites. They know whose, whose team they're on. This is really cool. They're like, no, we've picked our side, and so we're going to like appeal to the side that we're on. Come and help us, for the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country gathered are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and the mighty men of valor. God's people help. Gilgal to Gibeon, it's like a 35-kilometer all-night trek over a terrain that has an elevation of a thousand of a thousand meters. It is it's a crazy trek. But they go. It was a, it was it was going to be hard to help the Gibeonites. It was going to be hard. Uh, but God's people go because they know they're going with God. God has given them the charge. God has said, it's God has said, the Lord said to Joshua, verse 8, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man shall stand before you. So know that God is with them. 
and they go to help. And wow, do they go to help. Uh, the account is awesome. It's awesome. Like, they're going, and they're fighting off the, the, the Amorites, and there's a moment where Josh is just like, we need more time. God, can you make the sun stand still? We need an extra 12 hours today. Do you know what God does? Like, sure, Joshua. I can do that. I'm God. <laughs> but if that's not enough, in their pursuit of their, by this stage, they're fighting, then God's just like, you know what, guys? I reckon I'm going to step in and help you out too. And he sends hailstones upon the Amorites as they flee and run away. And it says in the text that actually more of these Amorites die from the hail that God sends than by the storm. But we see here that God's people help. God's people help. Do you know that if you're one of God's people, you are to help? You're to be a helper. Made in the image of God, God who gets called a helper, Holy Spirit who is our helper, God's people help. And yes, there'll be times where it's hard. I don't know if it's ever going to be a 35-kilometer trek over the mountains, the ancient Near East, but maybe it'll be hard on your pocket. Maybe it'll be hard on your calendar. Maybe it'll be hard on your emotional burden that you have to carry as you seek to help someone through a tough time. But God's people help. But we can have great hope in our helping because we know that as we help, we help with God. That God is with them, that God commissions them for that, that God's just like, yeah, you have my Holy Spirit that will go with you. You are living out your call as to be as one of my people. You can go and help and I will always be with you. I will not forsake you. That's one of the beautiful things that I think about when I read this passage. Like the Gibeonites reach out to the Israelites for help and the Israelites get to work, swords drawn, charging forwards. Amorite kings freaking out. They retreat. Then everyone else freaks out. They retreat. And then God's just like, yeah, just going to send some hail now and just finish up the job. Like I read that and I go, why didn't God send the hail to start with? It's kind of like when you watch The Lord of the Rings. It's like, why did they not just fly the birds in at the start of the movie? We would have saved 11 hours. Why didn't he just start with the hail? But just like the movie of The Lord of the Rings, it's God loves the journey with his people, doesn't he? What do we love about that story? It's about, you know, you see Samwise and Frodo and, you know, their shenanigans. You see Boromir and uh, Aragon and, sorry, Lord of the Rings people that don't watch this. But there's, a, there's the journey that we get to enjoy. And God loves to go with his people and be, relationship, be in relationship with his people. And God doesn't need Joshua to be on the front lines there. God doesn't need the Israelites to do the saving. But God wants them to be there with him. And he wants to do that to encourage, I think, firstly, the Gibeonites. There's like this physical presence of just like, yeah, you guys are like representative of God. Like, yeah, that, that's great. And then God wants to be there to encourage the Israelites. Happens that? Like, because God is there, the Israelites are there. And if the Israelites weren't there, they wouldn't have seen the hail. If the Israelites weren't there, they wouldn't have seen the sun stand still. If the Israelites weren't there, they wouldn't have got to have seen God's glory and majesty and power. And it's the same for us. If we don't go and to help others in their times of need, we don't get to be there to see God's power. We don't get to be there to be the carriers of God's love. 
God wants us to participate with him in his mission in this world because it's like we get a front row seat at all times to be like, wow, look what God is doing. You know, and there's, you know, you could take a posture, I guess, of just like, well, I'm just going to go over here and pray quietly, then do nothing and hope the rest of it will do with it. But like, where's the joy in that? Never seen the answer of your prayers. Never actually getting to walk in the beautiful presence of the Lord and see him change people's lives. God's people help. It's beautiful too. Uh, we look at our God's people help, and what's one of the ways that Joshua does it here? He helps by also praying, doesn't he? He doesn't just get his get his hands dirty, you know. It also takes moments to engage with God and ask for God to help as they seek to help. Now, this is a pretty uh, specific, miraculous prayer request. I don't know. I don't know if you noticed. I don't know if anyone has recently uh, asked for God to make the sun stand still. Um, in their evangelistic efforts. So we have to ask when we look at this passage, it's just like, well, do we have, can we, do we do this? Does this text teach us to make big prayers like this? God make the sun stand still? Well, I would say no. And I would also say yes. Oops. I say no because uh, notice the, the, the account gives us an appropriate appreciation uh, that this text, the text qualifies. It says, verse 14, There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. We also need to recognise that Joshua is in a pretty significant position. Joshua is like the leader of Israel, and he, has a, he actually has a, he is a, he's a somebody, not an anybody. He's an archetype, prototype, representative of Jesus Christ. When we see Joshua, we think of Jesus, okay, and we go, well, okay, so Joshua is representative of Jesus. So Joshua does, Joshua does have a certain higher level of command here in his unique role and what God has called him to. So I don't think our, I don't want you to leave today thinking, if I need a few extra hours to get my assignment in, I'm just going to pray and the sun will stand still. But I do want you to leave here to say, not only not I do I do want you to remember though how Joshua does point us to Jesus. And I do want you to hear what Jesus then later goes on to say to his disciples. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays in John 15, and he says, If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are are gathered up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, you won't be thrown away. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, this, ask Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit and prove yourselves to be my disciples. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, two very important qualifiers, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Joshua made a very specific request which is perfectly aligned with God's plans for his people. And Jesus is saying, you too can make very specific requests if they're also in line with God's plans for his people. And there's evidence of this that we have in Scripture. Evidence we have this in Scripture. Uh, Jesus promises this to us and we ask, well, can we believe him? Can we take 
him at his word. Let's have a look at some of the examples. Well, first of all, we see in the book of Acts, Acts 4, uh, there is the believers together in Acts 4, chapter 23, and they pray for boldness to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go out and spread the message and the good news of Jesus. And God answers that prayer. They, there's boldness that comes from that prayer. There's energy, there's vibrancy, there's life. And that prayer is like so obviously answered because actually the whole room shakes. Do you imagine that at a prayer meeting? It's like, God, we pray that we would have courage and strength. And, whoa. whoa, all right, let's go. Tell someone about Jesus. There's that. There's a good example there. What about in Acts 12, Peter in jail? Remember that story? Peter goes to jail. He's been proclaiming Jesus. And then the church is like back at home and they're just like, and Lord, we pray that uh, we pray for Peter and uh, we hope the food's not too bad. And if you could, uh, sorry, this is just all poetic license. This isn't actually in the text. Um, and if you could send it back, and, so, and then it's just like, like, hold on. Oh, sorry, guys. It was, it's some little girl. Could you go get the door? Hello. It's, uh, it's me. It's Peter. It's just like, hold on, what was that? It's, it's me. It's Peter. I've just been miraculously released from prison by an angel who, like, opened the door. So it's just like, hold on. Peter? Hold on. I've got to... And we pray for Peter that he'll be okay in jail. Uh, excuse me, um, Peter's at the door. He says, hold on, we're praying for Peter in jail. No, 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 like Peter's at the door. <laughs> amazing. Praying in the will of God and God does amazingly big things. These are, these are, there's evidence of this in the New Testament, in the history of the early church. But maybe you say to me, oh, but Louis, we can't just, like, that. that's just like the apostolic age. The book of Acts, it's, you know, it's, it's descriptive more than it is prescriptive. Good argument. I, I, you know, there's, there's good merit to that. But, um, you know, we can bring some examples closer to home. Has anyone recently spoken to some of the people that have been coming to our Monday prayer service? What has God been doing in our midst? What prayers has God been answering? Well, I've got a few to share, just a few, just to encourage you. Here's a good prayer that God's been answering. We're still here. <laughs> Esther mentioned the story of City on Hill Surf Coast. Holy moly. Changing in leadership, a global pandemic, mandates, meeting outside through the winter. So it's like all of those ingredients make for a cake. You're like, I don't want, whoa, it's actually pretty good. It's worked. What about answers for prayers for jobs? People to have accommodation as they move house. People to people that have had skin disorders healed. People have had healing in mental, physical, and emotional health happening within our church. As we have prayed and covered our prayers with God, not our will, but your will be done. But we come before you in humility and ask for your mercy. Or what about this one? Does anyone remember like the carols event? Remember what happened there? Where God fed 5,000 people with the two fish and the five loaves of volunteers that we had and money that we had. That's God answering prayers that we pray according to his will. If we go into that thing, like maybe we get, it'd be amazing if we see 2,000 people, 5,000 people at least. Or what about this one? Do anyone remember winter last year? Remember how, like, you know, you know how we got like a radio broadcasting whole set up in that big black box that we can just like, okay, brace ourselves, everyone. We'll come in and we'll do winter and we'll sit in our cars and we'll endure. Uh, how many times did we do a wet weather full drive-in service? How many times during the winter? Not once did we do a full 
winter service. Not once. Not once. Like I still remember sitting in Tash and Josh's lounge room, Josh and I are looking at the weather forecast, and Josh is like, yeah, that wind, that's gale force. We probably should pray about that, shouldn't we? And I, I can't even remember what week it was, but it was like the sun was out and there was next to no wind. Um, what's going on right now? Come on. It was raining this morning. How are these things possible? Well, we're just trying to abide in Christ, faithfully obey him and simply follow him and see where he leads us. And what are we doing as we pray? We pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. That's how we cover our prayers. That's how we pray. And maybe one day we'll need the sun to stand still. But right now he's already leading us with Jesus, his son. And we just make sure we don't, ourselves, we don't want to stand still. Let's follow him. So ask, as Jesus says, according to my will, whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Do you know the will of God for your life? Do you know what to ask? Are you trying to find out? Are you praying? <clears throat> now, after the uh, mass destruction of the Amorites on the uh, fence line of the Gibeonites, uh, there's now a switch in the posture of the Amorite kings. Uh, they've taken them, they've taken and they've run away and they've hidden a cave. So these Amorite kids, kings in all of their, in all of their cleverness, they've gone from uh, a rebellious attack to now a scared little retreat. <laughs> uh, but they're not very good at hiding. They're not very good at hiding. They get found out. And it's in this next section uh, that we get to be reminded of we're not only a people who help in the power of God by, the, by praying to God and the confidence of God, but we are a people who hope. God's people are people who hope. Now, this second section from halfway through chapter 10 all the way through the end of chapter 12, um, uh, I'm just going to read some highlights because it's really important that uh, we draw some of the more confronting aspects of this passage out now to give you some context and some things to chew on in your gospel communities later in the week. Uh, there's some really confronting stuff here, uh, but I want to encourage our confrontation to turn to comfort. So they find the kings out, uh, find them in the cave, they draw them out. Um, Joshua then proceeds to call the other leaders of the army across to him and they throw the kings on the ground and they put their feet on their neck and Joshua has a declaration over these kings that don't be afraid, don't worry. God is in control. These kings are thrust through, they are pierced, they are thrown onto a tree and then they are hung in there till evening and then they're thrown into the cave. And in this confidence that God's people now have, uh, the Israelites now go on and these kings uh, that have left their cities, they now go to Israel, the Israelites now go to occupy those cities and utterly destroy those cities. <clears throat> 
After Joshua said to them in verse 25, Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Verse 33. Then Horam, king of Giza, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people, and he left none remaining. Verse 6 of chapter 11. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. Tomorrow at this time I will give over Give over all of them, slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all of his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon. And they struck them until they left none remaining. There was not a, verse 19, there was not a city, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all, Israel took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts and they, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed. As just as the Lord commanded Moses. The final result of this uh, we see in uh, verse 23. Joshua gave, uh, and the land had rest from war. And then chapter 12 is basically uh, the bronze plaque that gets hung up in the pool room. Joshua's place in the promised land of all the kings that they conquered together. <clears throat> Now, I wonder what you think of uh, just some of the, just a brief overview of the actions there in this section. I think the word uh, destruction comes up 12 times, uh, destroyed twice, uh, no mercy a few times as well. Now, as much as I just want to run to and talk about the kings in the cave, uh, that's the preacher in me. The pastor in me wants us to recognise and help us think about the truth of what we've just heard in these confronting words here. There's a lot of violence, there's a lot of destruction, there's a lot of war, and there's even the hardening of hearts by God. Now, in short, a lot of our discomfort when we come to passages like this, and I'm going to give you the the tweet to start, is it happens because we have an undervalued view of God and an over-realized view of the goodness of man. Now that's going to be crass to sort of say it that way so briefly. But when we read through this, there's a few things that we need to consider to help us actually feel the relief that comes by viewing these passages and reading through these words. We should read this and there should be a sense of like, oh, wow, not oh, oh. Because right now we're all, oh, I want to get us to wow. There's three things I want us to consider to get us to wow. The first is that we have a logical argument. The logical argument here is that this is a proper dealing with evil. The second is the emotional argument, and this is, the process that the Israelites carry out, it's actually what we all deep down really long for as human beings created in the image of God. And lastly, 
is the hope argument. It's the revelation of what can do in our very own hearts. So let's have a think about the logical arguments. We read this and we see words like destruction, no mercy, complete annihilation. And we're like, ah, doesn't seem fair. What's going on? It's just, oh, no. But we have to realize who these people are in, in the land of in the land of in the land of Canaan. Like we've already covered it over the last few weeks in the book of Joshua. These are people that celebrate child sacrifice. These are people that are so anti-God and anti-good that it's just, it's not funny. Just like every single one of their actions is, is just an offense to what humanity should properly be. It just, and just to look on it and to see it, if we were to be there and just to spend one night in one of the Amorite pubs and to hear the language and to hear the stories and to hear what they were being celebrated, we'd be like, you guys are sick. You guys are messed up. You guys are so broken. And God has made it very clear that there is an opportunity for mercy. There is an opportunity for grace. There is space made for people to come to. They, these kings know because they're just like the Gideonites have sided with God's people. They know that there's an opportunity there, but they don't. They just want to continue on in their own delusion. But they're stronger, they're better, their way is great. And so the logical argument in here is like, this is just a good and proper dealing with evil. That if you're sitting back in the courtroom and you hear the judge put down the gavel, you're just like, yeah, that needed to happen. And we have to also be consistent with how we logically read the Bible. If we're unhappy with what we're seeing here, we have to rethink about what we think about when we read Noah and the Flood. If we're unhappy with what we see here, we also have to rethink what we go on to see in the future in the book of Revelation. When Jesus comes back, on the white horse, eyes filled with fire, a sword in his hand to tread out the winepress of the fury of God, to remove all that is evil, to remove all that is impure, to remove all that is bad. We have to not only we have to think about the way that God deals with evil across the whole spectrum and not get hung up on this one little story here. That's like the logical thinking. So that's for you engineers. What about, us, what about our, us creators? What about the emotional argument? The emotional argument for what's going on here. Well, there's three things that we see in the emotional argument as to why actually we can read this and be like, oh, wow, this is great. First is the thinking of uh, our desire for what is fair. I've discovered you don't have to teach a kid to organise these three words together in this order. That's not fair. That just comes out. That's just wired into our DNA. I discovered working in some jobs that, you know, you know when there's like the co-worker that's subtly, not so subtly, is trying to figure out how much you get paid because they want to compare how much they're getting paid. And then when you watch that happening in the office and then there's just like this argy-bargy and the boss is all stressed because this is like, oh, well, we're actually paying them more. And, you know, because what do people say? That's not fair. That's not fair. Now, I think that if we come to a text like this and if we have an overinflated view of how good man is, when the Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one that does good, there is no one that seeks God, all have turned away. If we come to it, when we think that actually, no, no, people are generally pretty, I'm a good person, generally people are pretty. And if we actually minimise the holiness and the beauty and the majesty and the perfection of God, maybe, we go, maybe we're not going to go down that that's not fair track. 
But has anyone like actually asked God like what he thinks of all of this? Like I wonder what God would be saying as he sees these Amorites just completely making a mockery of all the good and perfect gifts that have been coming down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. These Amorites, that every day they get sunshine, they get rain. Every moment they get a breath in their lungs, their food in their bellies. And then they take children that God miraculously allowed to be conceived in the wombs of the women and of these of the Amorites, and then they think it's a good idea to throw them on the altar as they try to worship some pagan god so their corn will grow. It's God saying there. We all desire fairness. That comes because we're created in the image of God, and God is making it fair when he executes this judgment. He's making it fair. There's fairness. The other one is balance. We all desire balance. We love balance. We're into balance. You know, that's why, like, karma is so popular. Oh, yeah, you get. Get back what you give out. People love karma. People like the yin and yang symbol. Like, yeah, yin and yang. It's, like, so balanced, you know. And if you're not into that sort of stuff, we love balance. You know, we love creative art, which promotes a certain symmetry. You know, they what do they talk about? Like, a beautiful person is one that has, like, a symmetrical face. Is that the thing? Like, is that, like, the balance? We love balance. God loves balance. God loves balance. God is righteous. God is just. God is balanced. We see this even in the laws of creation. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. That takes me back to year nine physics, which I dropped for PE. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. You didn't do physics? No, I sucked at physics. But I remembered that. Now, consider a holy, infinite, perfect, strong, powerful God. What happens if you hit out against that? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You want to see balance? You do an eternally, you do an offense that has eternal consequences, you'll receive a rebound that has eternal consequences. There's balance. This destruction appeals to our sense of balance. So we shouldn't be surprised that as these Amorites, as they have made plans, to destroy the things that God says is good, that God is just like, well, if you want to go that way, I'll play your game. You throw a punch, and then I'll throw a God punch. But more than being balanced, the last one which I think appeals to our creative side is our desire and longing for beauty. That's one uh, one thing that I've been thinking about as we look at the people occupying the promised land of God giving the Israelites, God giving his people what he promised them, as they go through and they cleanse it of all that is evil and impure, it is bringing in a new age, it's renovating this place to make it beautiful once again of what we all long for. See, God is holy. God is pure. God is perfect. He is the supreme being of effortless flow, beauty and order. And the world that he created, he loves it and he wants to keep it in that way and he will eventually restore it to that way. We are a people that appreciate flow, beauty and order. That's why we love watching professional athletes because they move and play and do things in the way that we don't because when we do it, we bring all this other junk that just makes it look ugly. That's why we appreciate great art. 
Because when we do it, we bring all this junk that makes it look ugly. And so we look at it, we go, that's beautiful. Like you've, you have made that so beautiful is in a state of perfection and purity and even holiness. So when we look at this justice being executed across this land, we get a sense of like, oh, wow, God's like removing everything that is actually putting this thing, making it, he's making it more beautiful. He's renovating. He's, you know, it's like the, you know, the guy that renovates the old car. God's just like scrubbing off all the rust. You know, he's just, he's, he's repainting this thing. He's making it new. He's making it beautiful once again. And so when we see this destruction, it's just like, yeah, God's getting rid of all the stuff that makes it ugly. And the end result is going to be beautiful. It's beautiful. Are you beginning to see how this destruction, which is at first a little bit confronting, that when you can put yourself in the posture of God and what he loves and what actually we also love, it's actually comforting? The second thing, the last thing that we find confronting in this is that God hardens their hearts. All good and well for me to, you know, make the argument, but you might come back and be like, yeah, but verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. God hardened their hearts. This isn't a new thing in Scripture. God does it for Pharaoh. And then Paul gives us an explanation of how that sort of works in Romans 9. Um, and we can sit back and we'll probably have, many of you will probably ask the question of GC. It's just like, oh, is that fair that God hardens their hearts? And GC will be like, yeah, well, those are three points that we made about the creatives and the engineers and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but before we get too hung up on uh, the hardening of hearts, again, we mustn't over-assume how good humanity is. See, in this moment, God is still giving these Amorites exactly what they wanted. There was at no point that they were drawing, they were trying to draw before God. God hasn't changed what they want to be something apart from what they originally desired, right? Their hearts were already concrete. The fire of God just came near close enough to just set it. Like there's not a posture here of these people in the promised land, which is like, we'd love to be with you, God. And then says, God's just like, eh, no, turn your desires away in the other direction. That's not what he does. So we can be confronted because we think, oh, God's like doing stuff in our minds. But he can. And that's good news. We might be confronted a little bit here that he can harden someone's heart, but if he can harden a heart, what does that also mean on the other side of the coin? He can soften a heart. See, what is our hope as followers of Jesus in our big Christian word, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus? Is it in our energy? Is it in what we can do? Is it in our cleverness? Is it in how well we can plan and schedule and write a routine of all of our holiness tasks to make us more like Jesus? No. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, he's like, if you have started in the spirit, why are you now like trying to continue in the effort of your flesh? That's not how becoming more like Jesus looks like. 
If we're actually pursuing Christ, the only way that we can change is if we're holding hands with Christ. And when we make our confession of Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we throw ourselves upon his mercy, what do we receive? The gift of his Holy Spirit, which is in us to change us. And if God, this should give us such confidence because if God can harden our heart, he can also change our heart. This is my story. There's been things that I have struggled with in so many different ways. I'm just like, God, that is just like, I do not want to do that stuff. I don't like, and you know, and you can come up with all these clever ways of just like, you know, you, you, you change the type of phone you have and you find accountability groups and blah, 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 blah. But if you try and do all those things without Jesus, good luck. You might have a couple of weeks of success. You'll find yourself in the same pit. The only way that you're going to find change is if you throw yourself upon the mercy of God as like, let, like, please help do this work in me. And that is our confidence for becoming more like Jesus. That is our confidence in evangelism. That is our confidence in making Jesus known as well. It's not up to the cleverness of our words. It's not up to how fancy we can be. It's not how good our services look and the, you know, the transitions are between the musos and the service leader. It's, it's none of that. It's actually just like we are going to make a plain open statement of the truth that Jesus is king. He died, he went to the grave, he rose again for the forgiveness of sins. And if you put your trust in him, you can be saved from death. And then God does the work in the heart. So try not to try not to bristle at the hardening of this hardening of hearts. Because there's a lighter side which is actually, oh man, God, I want you to soften mine. I want you to soften theirs. You're actually king and ruler and you are the divine supreme being over all things. That's awesome. Don't bristle at that. That's one of the reasons we don't like it. We're reminded of our frailty. We're reminded we're not God. We're reminded that we don't have any real control. We're needy. That's fine. Be reminded of that. Start the day like that. Because you'll start the day like, Jesus, I need your help today. I'm yours. Take me. Use me. Fill me. Lead me. Because when we do that in our own strength, oh, sorry, just personal experience, it doesn't go well. What's after the book of Joshua? The book of Judges. No leadership, no trust. Goes terrible. Goes real bad. But if you're still uncomfortable, if you're still uncomfortable with the destruction and the judgment and the lack of mercy, Good. There's a reason to go and tell the world that Jesus is alive. Because we have a message that people can respond to and believe in where they will receive mercy. There is coming a day, the day of the Lord, where Jesus will return a second time. This stuff in Joshua 10 to 12 foreshadows that. Hailstones coming down from the sky to fall upon the enemies of God, Joshua is foreshadowing that. comes up in Revelation. Have a read through Revelation this week. Have a read through Revelation. Read through the seven bowls of God's judgment. That's coming for us. It's coming to this world. And we can recall and be like, ah! Or we can be like, oh, good. Purity, perfection, beauty, balance, what is fair, God on the throne. I don't want my friends and family to be subject to that. Oh, good God, you have come down and met us in the mess, in the personal work of Jesus. I need to tell them of that. 
And that's where Jesus is so beautiful in this passage. Anyone see the Jesus moment in this passage? It's like the most obvious Jesus moment in all of Joshua. See those five kings in the cave, pulled out, stood on the necks, humiliated, pierced, hung on a tree, and then thrown back into cave carved out of the rock. Who does that sound like? That's Jesus. Points to Jesus. Why is it there in this passage? Well, why does Joshua do that for the Israelites? Why does he do that? Why does he make a public spectacle of these kings? Why does he do that? Well, Joshua drags these kings out of the cave and he slaughters them in this way to show the rest of Israel and the leaders of the army. He's like, those Amorites have got nothing. Am I right? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Those Amorites got nothing. Look at them. Those are the kings. Now that they are dead, go and take the land. Now that they are dead, go and take that. They are dead, you've got nothing to fear. They are dead, they've got nothing to rally the forces against them, against you. They are dead, there's nothing standing in your way from walking in the purposes that God has for you. They are dead, go and enjoy the promises of God. And they point to Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus has died, hung on the tree, pierced for our transgressions. It says in Colossians 2, 14 to 15, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he, Jesus, has taken it away, nailing it on the cross, having disarmed having disarmed the rulers and powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. He might break the power of him who holds the power of death. See, what's the difference between those kings and Jesus? Those kings, Joshua's armies can go out because they were remembering that they're still in the cave dead, rotting bones. They're not come, they, they should have been worried if the five kings came out. Hey? So it was like Joshua's leading man in the army, like, what are you doing back? I remember cutting your throat. So what about us? What is, what's our posture? Jesus is out of the cave. Jesus has shown he's conquered sin, Satan, and death. So do we need to fear death? Do we need to fear, like, that is the one thing that the enemy has on us. Oh, don't do that. You're like, could die. Maybe it's not physical death. Maybe it's like a relational death. Maybe that, that might die. Yeah. Or maybe it's like a some sort of like there's a there's a pressure there from Satan. It's just like no, in Jesus all things are making. In Jesus there's power for power, power for all. If Jesus can come back from the grave, go and walk in His power and His promises, and declare the good news of the gospel to all of those that need to hear, lest they too come under the hand of a vengeful wrath of God. I'm going to stop now. This. I'm going to stop.
But church, we are people who help. And we're people who have hope. Because Jesus is alive. God is making all things new. And we have a power that you will not believe we have until you actually go to the place of prayer and say, not my will, but your will be done. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.